You are listening to the In Defense of Plants podcast, a show designed to cure plant blindness around the globe. Support for In Defense of Plants comes from listener donations. If you would like to give your support to In Defense of Plants, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants, and together we can help cure plant blindness one episode at a time. Hello everyone and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefensiveplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Sarah Johnson. Hi, Sarah. Hello. And we're going to be talking about a recent botanical sojourn we went on to Louisiana. Good old Louisiana. Yeah, I'd never been. Had you? I went with a couple of very good friends in January of my last semester of college on a road trip, and we went to New Orleans for one day. So you didn't you didn't do any hiking or botanizing or anything? Uh, no, it wasn't wasn't my uh, primary directive at that point in my life. And that's fine. But we decided I had never been, as I said, and, and Sarah had been. So we decided that we were going to use our spring break to go somewhere warm that was close enough that we didn't have to buy plane tickets. Yeah. Uh, just to escape the cold, dreary weather we're having up here in the Midwest. And what a trip it was. Before we get to that, I just want to remind everyone to go check out the merch we have for sale, teespring.com slash shops slash plants. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So let's talk about our adventure, botanizing in Louisiana. Well, I guess we'll start with the drive down there, which there's not much to say about that other than we left and (sighs) pretty much just the hazelnuts around town were starting to flower and some of the bulbs were poking up through the ground. But as we drove, it was like hitting a fast forward button on spring. It is always nice when you're traveling in the spring to see the further you go south trees starting to bloom. I think we saw red buds as far, maybe probably not until we got to Mississippi, Definitely Mississippi, maybe Southern Illinois, but that would be pushing it. But the redwoods are always nice to see because they love, you know, edge habitats and and roadsides and just a big spray of pink as you drive is is pretty cool, especially in the the temperate zones. Yeah, I always like to watch uh, that change, though, as you go more and more south and see the temperature rise on the the thermometer in the car and (laughs) you get more and more excited as you keep going because... I don't know how many listeners are in the Midwest or up north, but I feel like this winter has seemed to be especially dreary and dragged out. It just seems like it's been going and going and going. Yeah, it's really taken a lot out of me mentally. But yeah, I mean, we just literally watched the forests sort of color up with buds bursting and and tiny wind-pollinated flowers making their appearance. And then pretty much... From southern Mississippi to northern Louisiana and onward, it was safe to say spring was like well underway. Yeah, for sure. I think I started to finally see uh, sawpaw meadows, sable minor, in the understory of forest in like southern Mississippi. So I was officially getting oh, excited yeah. at that point because, as I've said before, and I'll probably say again, I'm a northern boy and just seeing palm trees outside. In a forest also. And especially in a forest uh, just blows my mind and gets me really, really excited. So the first day when we finally had settled in, 
I really noticed around town where we were staying, Sago Palms, the Cycad, Cycus Revoluta, as yeah. an outdoor plant. That was... I, yeah, I, I think just seeing tall, palm-like, tropical-looking plants is pretty exciting. There's not really anything like that up here. Now, I know Sago Palms can handle some frost. Obviously, it gets cold enough to, to have freezing temperatures in, in Louisiana and northern Florida, where I've seen them outside before, but up here... In the temperate zone, these are plants you keep in a pot, put outside in the summer, and bring back in. And so they never get really big. And I almost had to do a double take. The first one we saw, which was in like a fast food restaurant parking lot. Yeah. And it was probably yeah about as tall as I was. But the best part, I think, of all of it was seeing the big reproductive structures, big cones, and then uh, all the seeds on some of the larger specimens. It's just so different to see that that cycad doing what it wants to do, getting big, living outdoors. It was neat. We got to our Airbnb in central Louisiana, and there was a really beautiful, large, ovate-leafed tree out front, and it had big yellow fruits on it. Yeah, it really took me back. Like The bark reminded me of a saucer magnolia, but the leaves looked extremely different. At first glance, I thought it was maybe an oleander because of the shape, but they were obviously not. They were serrated, kind of fuzzy. But those fruits... Yeah, they reminded me of uh, a friend of ours had had us try a... Oh, um... Rose apple? Rose apple, yeah, which is in the guava family. Right, and I was like, oh, it looks kind of like that, and it tastes kind of like that, maybe? So we ended up tasting them. Well, you did. I'm, I'm always cautious. <laughs> well, I didn't know if we were supposed to try them, but I don't know. Whatever. I tried it. Good news. It's a loquat. Yeah. Apparently loquat. <laughs> totally edible and totally delicious. Areobotria japonica are a common, or at least somewhat common. We saw them quite a bit walking around town. I've never seen tree. a loquat in I've, my entire yeah, life. So. I'd never eaten one either. And so as soon as we figured out what they were, we collected a bunch and, and feasted. And they're really good. It's kind of like a, a fuzzy... Well, you can take the fuzz rind, off. Yeah. But it's like the, the rind is kind of like a pear where it's got that graininess to it. But the inside is really soft and very sweet. Very plum-like. Um, they don't last super long, which is probably why you don't see them in the grocery store. But right before we had come down here, Aaron, all in Updike from This Podcast Will Kill You, was like, loquats are my favorite fruit of all time. <laughs> and they're so delicious. And I can't wait to eat a loquat when I'm in California. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I immediately sent her a picture and was like, we have a loquat tree. I brought some home. Yeah. So we collected a bunch of seeds. They have a big hard seed in the middle of them. And we collected a bunch and we're trying to germinate them. So we'll have baby loquats to like bonsai or something like that. (laughs) But uh, so the first day we had a chance to get out and get hiking and and really see the landscape. We wanted to stick close. We didn't want to drive too far because we had been in a car for 12 hours. Forever. And so we went to a little, I don't know, I guess, nature center park really close to town where we were staying. And uh, they had a really nice little boardwalk trail that went through sort of a swampy area. You could tell it had been highly modified. It was probably a, some sort of agriculture or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that they let revert back to something natural. Uh, but there's still like channelization and ditches. But nonetheless... As soon as we hit the ground, we knew we were in for a treat because the entire understory was kind of a mix of what we think were saw palmettos, Serenoa ripens, and dwarf palmetto, Sable Minor. Mm -hmm. To be fair, I don't know how to distinguish the two. We were also, we we hastily left 
we weren't going to be down there for very long, so I had no access to a key or a field guide. We had Sarah's field limited, guide. Well, my limited knowledge of Florida pine savanna habitat with a, yeah, a little field Florida guide, field guide. Which, there was some overlap. It was useful. Yeah. But it wasn't, uh, it wasn't enough to really help us on site in a lot of these places. But it didn't matter because it was already very different. And there was something about seeing palms underneath oaks that really, it just, it was super exciting because it just feels so foreign to anything I'm used to seeing. But one of the coolest things I think I saw there, besides the innumerable green dragons, although you can get those up here in Arisema Draconchium, but was definitely that little clematis that we saw, clematis crispa. Yeah, it was very cute. And it's like clematis viorna, but instead of the thick leathery petals, it's got more curtain-like, and they, they, they're they purplish to lavender, and they come down, and the, the tips of the petals curl back. Curtain-like is a good description. Yeah, very curtain-like. They're a little pleated. And that, we saw maybe one or two right at the trailhead, and we're like, oh, that was, we'll count that as a win for today. But as we walked everywhere. Yeah, there's tons of them. And it's cool to see plants doing what they do in the wild, because you, like, I'm used to Clematis virginiana climbing up and over and taking over, like, shrubs and stuff. But this one seemed to be pretty low, not getting much over knee height, hanging out almost as, like, a ground cover in some spots. Yeah. And it, yeah, it didn't go climb too tall. Like, it wasn't as vining. You know, you see some of those white clematis that kind of take over people's fences around here. It was really simple and dainty, and it didn't vine too heavily. Yeah. And then pretty much along every drier spot, trail, roadside, wherever we were that day, we were seeing that little salvia, salvia lorata, I think it was. And it's got a... Very cute. Yeah, a cute little crispy rosette of leaves, and then a tall stalk with kind of bright light blue flowers on mm-hmm. it and they they just grow in profusion and I've seen them in the Carolinas and what's really cool is after they are done they set seed it's almost like a rattle on top as little seeds inside the the, the leftover uh, calyx just kind of rattle around it was it was quaint there was a lot of what I think is water oak Quercus and Cygnus there which is a new oak for me I'd never experienced it before so thanks to everyone on Instagram that helped me out on that and the neatest thing about that is, obviously, they were up in the canopy, but the seedlings that we were seeing, extremely variable in leaf form. And I guess that's one of the the characteristics of them, is, is the, the young leaves take on a lot of different shapes, which complicates an already difficult group of trees to identify. But oh, we saw some really nice birds. Uh, we saw our first green tree frog. Yeah, we saw a little green uh, tree frog. Hyla scenaria. Hanging out on a palm frond. Yeah. Very cute, because we didn't see a lot of, uh, well, definitely that first day, we didn't see a lot in the way of animals. We no, saw a lot quiet. of birds. It's always nice to see the kind of the warblers that hang out more regularly down in the south, which people that live down there are probably used to, but are so novel when they come back up north during spring migration. So like northern perulas, yellow-rumped warblers... We saw oh palm yeah, I saw, I saw a hooded warbler. Yeah, yeah, a little hoodie. Yeah, palm warbler. So there's quite a, quite a few birds at this first place we went hiking. So a nice foreshadowing for the birders up north of they're they're coming. Taking a while, but they're coming. Yeah, but yeah, it was just a nice sight because there was some boardwalks that you could take a walk on and and look around and get a vantage point that you normally don't get walking into kind of wet habitats. But as I mentioned, the green dragons were out in force, and I'm always happy to see them because of that ridiculous spadex that comes up and out of the spathe sometimes overtopping the leaves itself which i guess is like the dragon's neck or something like that but 
one of the cooler things about seeing all of those was I'm always looking to see like, oh, is this one doing its male phase? Is this mm-hmm. one doing a female phase? And for the first time that I can remember, at least I found one whose inflorescence had both male and female flowers on it, which seems like a weird thing to get excited about. But these are really classic examples of sort of the, the fluidity and in, in sex expression in a lot of plants based on energy consumption seeds require way more energy to produce so it stands to reason that bigger plants tend to be female smaller plants tend to be male because pollen is cheap but here was one plant right in the middle doing both and it was just kind of neat to kind of check that off my list as a little little nerd check mark <laughs> for a little enjoying, nerd check mark for enjoying uh arrows across the globe <laughs> There was some really giant live oaks at that first spot yeah. too, which was something that we noticed the entire trip was the largest trees seemed to be the live oaks. Always. Yeah. Through town, out the countryside, even in some of the hiking spots and paddling spots we went to, it was the biggest trees that weren't in the water were live oaks. Yeah. Covered Southern with resurrection ferns. and. That was the other thing I noticed too, and it could just be that I'm not familiar enough with you know, the flora down there, but it felt like of all of the trees we were seeing, the live oaks had the heaviest epiphyte load. Yeah. Resurrection fern and... Well, they're massive. They could probably handle the weight of it. Yeah, Spanish moss, Tillandsia, Usneoides. And I just wonder too, I mean, other than the size and the sturdiness of those branches, if something has to do with like the bark texture. Does anyone know? If you know something about like bark texture and live oaks and epiphytes, send me a paper or two. Because uh, I think that's really neat that the potential for sort of bark texture and microclimates could be a big player there. Because, I mean, you think there's yeah for so, sure so many opportunities for these to grow on other plants down there, and you just didn't see it that much. But Yeah, I mean, I really genuinely don't remember seeing any trees that had the girth and structure yeah. that the live oaks did, though. I mean, their branches are so long and branching and really wide. Yeah, some like, of they're them huge. would, like, come out from the tree at a 90-degree like, angle and then just come down and hit the ground and go back up. It was super impressive. And you could tell, at least in town, that these were valued trees. It was very obvious where they were kept around for their, their grandeur and cultural significance. But the great thing, too, is they were in full flower, and I have taken a long time to notice trees in my life. I don't know about you. Uh, I, I'm still struggling with noticing <laughs> trees. I love them. I notice them. But whether I actually try to identify or right. learn about them is another problem. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nut for like small, tiny, inconspicuous flowers. And the live oaks were in full flower down there. And you can see the male flowers. They just dangle almost like a very loose catkin. Yeah. But uh, I was looking at some of the branch tips and I was able to see the female flowers, which are tucked in the little axles of the leaves. And they're pretty much just an ovary with a style sticking up. They're super small, super insignificant on the the beauty scale. But it was just so neat to finally see that something that's going to eventually swell to be a little acorn. (laughs) That is cute. But. Yeah, I don't know. The The first day was pretty low-key. I mean, we kind of... Well, after the first place, you're forgetting, we went on an adventure to another location with a lake. Oh, that was the first day, wasn't it? Yeah, that was the first day because we, oh, we yes. were like rip-roaring to get out there and everything actually took much less time than we thought it was going to get. That's right. So I take it back. We didn't want to take it easy. We found another spot. I totally forgot that was the first day. Yeah, so we, we found a place... 
uh, a nice local business that rented canoes and kayaks because unfortunately we do not have our own. And yeah. so we rented a ki- or a canoe and we went out on our first larger lake with uh, a cypress and tupelo yeah. swamp. Big bald cypress and swamp tupelo and water tupelo. It was incredible. This is, uh, we had paddled in Florida a couple years back. We paddled at Chattuckney Springs, which had yeah. a lot of cypress, but this was like the first true cypress swamp I had ever been in. Yeah. And no pictures could do this justice. The, the structure and feel of being in and among that. We rented a canoe, which was really great because it was just us. There wasn't a lot of people out because it was a weekday. And it was is, cloudy and yeah, like not it, that warm, actually. No, it was actually but very chilly. But for us, we're like, ooh, it's so warm. Yeah. And so we just head out into the trees to see what we could find. And I, the first thing that really jumped out at me, obviously, was the structure of this place. These giant trees with large branches just decked in epiphytes, but then these huge buttress bases. Yeah. Sitting in water that was probably no more than two feet deep in most places. Yeah. But it's still strange wading through a forest. Yeah. That's completely inundated. It's very bizarre. It felt primeval. And the first place my mind went was a paper I read a little while back about a carboniferous swamp. You know, a 350 some odd million year old swamp that was yeah. preserved in situ. And the the paleobotanists that were sort of describing the structure of these stumps that had been preserved as they would have been standing said, you know, everything about this is extremely reminiscent of what we see in cypress swamps today. So my mind kept going back and forth thinking about what these old carboniferous swamps would have looked like and that kind of habitat and comparing it to this one. And it, it was just a surreal experience overall. Even if I wasn't seeing cool plants, it was just yeah. one of those natural experiences. Well, I like the... At first, I didn't realize we were seeing different trees and then realized the tupelos have that really, like, bodacious buttress to them. It's, like, <laughs> it's smooth, but it's very clearly, like, bottled at the bottom. Yeah. But it's smooth. And then the cypress have that, like, striated, more... Ribbed. Ribbed, but, like, flaky. I don't know how to just, you know... Just, but just a totally different base to it. And then they have the knees that come up and stick out. Yeah. And we saw a decent amount of those also. That's neat because bald cypress is planted all around our campus. I mean, it does well in town here in central Illinois. We have it in southern Illinois, but it, you rarely get to see it get to any great size. And unless you get to a few spots, you don't ever see them producing knees. So to see it again, these trees sort of unleashed doing what they want to do. Yeah. That was really cool. Well, and they looked just so different. I mean, we were there when they were starting to leaf out, too, so nothing was completely leafed out yet. But just the color on the trees, the, all the bald cypress in our neighborhood are like a nice brown sienna red, and their flaky bark is loved by all the squirrels. They pulled, <laughs> yeah. We've seen many a squirrel just yank and yank on the bark of the cypress to use as nesting material. But the color of them is completely different in these swamps. It's like a gray. Mm-hmm. It's covered in lichen and covered in the tillandsias. And so it's, yeah. it's a totally different look. To that it. was, I mean, the live oaks had a lot, but tillandsia usneoides hits its stride in these swamps. And it's probably humidity and air currents and microclimate, but just carpets of this stuff and i wanted to like put it around my neck like a feather boa and just absorb myself in it but i remembered my old advisor yeah 
telling me it's a, a those those mats are a favorite haunt of chiggers, and I didn't want to get yeah. chiggers if I could help nice it. It's chiggers. Yeah. The other cool thing was seeing some of the aquatic veg. Now there were a couple of patches of irises. I don't know which iris. Maybe they were the blue zigzag man. iris or something like that. They were a larger iris than I was used to. Unfortunately, there was a ton of invasives, mostly salvinia and water hyacinth in that waterway. Yeah. Uh, that really sucks. Salvinia is a floating fern, which is actually an incredible plant. You should look it up. I, I even have a post on the website if you go search salvinia. I don't think they produce any rhizoids or stuff. I think every structure on that plant is a modified leaf or hmm. frond. And then water hyacinth is... Uh, beautiful. It's beautiful, yeah, and that's why it's here. It's a pond plant and an aquarium plant but it's now escaped and that sucks Um, but it just goes to show you how intense some of those aquatic invasives can be and there was the muriophyllum in there too but every once in a while i saw what looked like a hymenocallus or something like that starting to poke up well we saw that plant that looked like it might be an orchid oh yeah that one cypress i almost forgot about that i do know well, I don't know that they're down in Louisiana, but I recently found out about an epiphytic sedge that lives on cypress knees up in Missouri and southern Illinois. can't remember the name of the sedge. Right, so it would probably just be out in the swamp growing on stumps. And, right, and like the, growing the buttress. Ab- among the knees and buttresses. So That's it's possible so cool. we saw that, but we had no idea what we were looking at at yeah. the time. So not only do we not have keys or our field guides that were really useful to hey, us. Hey, you know what? Just winging it is cool. Right, no, I'm know? fine with that. But uh, <laughs> in terms of Carrick's identification, forget it. <laughs> I'm not there yet. Yeah. But despite some of the invasive veg, it was still pretty clear and open. Probably because it was more of an open waterway. And we still saw a ton of wildlife. We saw lots yeah. of turtles, which looked just like sliders. I don't... Painted turtles paint, or, or I'm sorry. Or... Yeah, painted turtles. Maybe, is that what they call a cooter in the south? I don't know. I, yeah, are all turtles cooters? Or is it a specific turtle? We should have done our research on that. Right. Uh, we saw, saw gators. A couple gators. Which... First look at a gator. I know that's no new news for anyone living in the south, but again, we're northerners. Well, and they were small, so I felt good about that. <laughs> uh, but... confident. We saw a couple black crowned night herons, and then we saw a yellow crowned night heron. We saw a few of those. That was really cool. It was great because I haven't seen one in maybe like six years, eight years. Little blue herons, which were oh, they're adorable. so precious, really beautiful. Bardow. We black, saw that Bardow. Oh yeah, Bardow. Yeah. Um, black bellied whistling ducks. Yeah, that was neat because they kind of hunker down in some of the thicker spots of vegetation and then. You spook them and they they whistle. They sure do. Very pretty. So just to see the whole ecosystem kind of yeah interacting and and just being there and being protected was super heartening and yeah. And there was fishermen out. They had large um, like fishing rafts kind of set up. Yeah, there were bass boats. But yeah, there's still you could tell that it was a nice balance that they had at this place. I think yeah we left there and we went to the city to find us some po boys yeah ate some delicious louisiana (laughs) fare and then we were so full we were so stuffed we had to take a walk around the neighborhood and got to see some of the local landscaping which i always like to see what people are planting in their gardens all around the country yeah the whole cultural shifts that you see with landscaping choices you don't see as many uh impatience and petunias (laughs) like all the stuff that i find so boring up here because it's all everyone plants 
But you did see a ton of like azaleas and rhododendrons. So many azaleas and rhodos. Saw fringe tree. That was really cool because the fringe tree, that was the first time I think I've seen a true American native yeah, fringe it's tree. gorgeous. All the ones that I thought were on campus turned out to be the Asian species. Yeah. Which is still a beautiful tree. Weird but yeah, stuff, the, the fringe yeah. trees were completely decked out. I mean, they were bursting with yeah. white f- petals. I mean, I didn't know it got that intense. Obviously, they're growing in full sun and probably pampered a bit, but that was really cool. There was a uh, a lot of not a lot of them, but a handful of bottle brush trees that with the they're like a I think they're a fabaceae red sort of bottle brush looking inflorescence on them. We saw that rogue uh, Malabar spinach. Yeah, that was, we it looked. I said that kind of looks like a um, phytolacca pokeweed, right? But this is actually I just, it's funny because I we saw it. She said that. I took a picture of it being like, oh, I'll come back to this later. And then I got on Twitter yesterday and someone posted it and said, oh, here's this Malabar spinach. It's called Bacella alba and it's in its it's in a family I didn't know existed called Basilaceae. Never even heard of it. Yeah. It's a pretty plant and it's edible. I mean, people grow it. And I have it seeds and I didn't even know. As, yeah, finding we can't, spinach. We can't grow spinach very well during the summer in central Illinois. Yeah, so it's, it's native to... India and Southeast Asia, New Guinea, uh, and apparently it's got edible leaves that you can treat like spinach and these little white flowers that come out of sometimes green stems, but that one we saw was bright purple stem. That was cool. Yeah. So we rested up and got ready for the next day because the next day we're heading up north because we had heard rumor of some intact longleaf pine savannas. And bogs and bog-like conditions right pitcher plants which is what we were hoping for and we thought you know we probably timed it out pretty well to maybe see some in bloom and when we first got there it was looking pretty drab <laughs> i mean gorgeous because it's a long yeah. leaf pine savanna and there was we were very early though yeah i i don't know if they're all long leaf there might be some Slash and Loblolly. Well, certainly a lot of what we were seeing going into that tract was Slash and Loblolly. I was reading about it, and forest management areas were treated differently. Some came in and were replanted, and then fire was sequestered, so the Slash and the Loblolly took off. But this area where we went, apparently burning the forest was part of the culture. It was something people were doing. So all the Slash and Loblolly bowed out. I don't know if they were out-competed or just don't like fire as much, but Longleaf Pine came back and maintain this sort of open savanna type habitat. So what was really cool was that this area was protected from all the logging that we were seeing in that region. Literally right next door. Literally right next door. Uh, but it was also being managed for the red cockaded woodpecker habitat. So we were we knew we were going to see some big trees. Well, and I was fortunate enough to, as we were getting out of the car, hear and see the red cockaded woodpecker, which was very exciting. And they're they're federally endangered, right? I think it depends on the state, but yeah, I don't I or what their state list status is in Louisiana, but federally I'm yeah. gonna guess they're probably Well the old endangered. story goes is that they absolutely rely on large diameter longleaf pines to build their nests, their cavity nesters, like all woodpeckers are. And so when all of the longleaf pines got cut, they ran out of places to lay their eggs, and so 
there was only a few pockets left where there were big enough trees to support them. So all this work went into restoring them. And so they were doing a lot of active management to restore the pine stands to have this like mixed age. I don't know. This isn't a bird podcast, so I don't research it too heavily. But it's pretty close. Yeah. The longleaf pine savannas are there. And, and because of them, the red cockaded woodpecker is there. And, and a lot of other amazing species that we saw. So you were my guide into this habitat because you have way more pine savanna experience. I have literally three weeks. <laughs> Maybe, is, no, one week worth of experience in a pine savanna. Way, but I've been studying it and reading I'd only been that. in one for one day before that, so way more than me. But it is near and dear to my heart because I read papers and watch webinars and things about it all day long. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was kind of kind of hard to, you know, we got through this initial berm of trees and then it kind of led into a depression in the middle of this area there was some like ericaceous shrubs yeah um, probably the kothaway there was some maybe some blueberries i don't know i there again, was definitely some vaccinians lots of I don't know what kind. lots of bay oh yeah lots of bay yeah but we had to kind of we didn't want to be like all those people you've been seeing in California where you just go into this sensitive habitat and trample the heck out of it for pictures. So we did our best <laughs> to follow. You could tell, you know, people were in there managing. So there was... And deer trails. And... Yeah, there were deer trails, but there was also some human trails where they go in and are doing some assessments and stuff. So we followed those and did the best we could. But that was fine because there was plenty. And it yeah. even seemed like some of the, the trails were allowing a lot of plant species to exist where they would just be crowded out in other spots of this... I guess you'd call it a bog, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like a seep, I guess. Yeah. It was well, wet. Yeah, it was It was wet. like a wet depression surrounded by more yeah. upland, sandier habitats. And I didn't see the pitcher plants right away, but what I was seeing a lot of was this little composite, this little asteraceae. And it was timely because I was thinking about the interview I had a couple of weeks ago with Joey about asteraceae obsession. So I honed in on it and it was cute. It was something I hadn't seen before. It was this little rosette of sort of hairy leaves really pressed to the ground and then a nice single slender stalk that ended in pinkish white flowers and uh turns out that that was the pineland daisy captalia tomentosa well and i like a lot of these plants you know when you see the type of habitat they're trying to grow in which is clearly a huge challenge unless it's burned super regularly the understory of grasses is just like a dense thicket and so if you're a small tiny plant and you don't have a bare spot to grow and to begin growing, you really have to work hard to kind of get above <laughs> the grass yeah, layer yeah. underneath. And so a lot of the flowers that, you know, they've got, they've got a nice tall stalk and then the flowers at the top of the stalk because they got to get up above that right. grass layer. But even then, I mean, in the, like I said, in some of the ruts and some of the trails and deer trails and stuff, we were, that's where the plants were starting to really take advantage of it. And the first carnivores we saw were Drosera. I think it was probably spatulata or rotundifolia, maybe both. So small. Really tiny. Yeah, about maybe the size of a quarter in total of the rosette. Mm -hmm. uh, but bright red. A lot of them were full of insects, which was really heartening. So we knew we were on the right track. And yeah. then the stuff that was really poking up above the grass that got my attention the most was that weird lycopod. And I still wish I knew what it was. If anyone knows what lycopods would be in a, a pine savanna in central Louisiana, let me know. This one had these like long, lanky climbing stems. It almost acted like a, a vine where it was climbing up and yeah. over the grasses just trying to get... Ambling along. Yeah, it was ambling. It was very ambling. Uh, there were a lot of 
and as as we got along more of the depression there were a lot of dried pitcher plants so you could yeah. see that there had been a lot of pitchers in the last season and eventually we started seeing some buds popping up floral buds floral buds that were very short still but they yeah. were getting there and you could tell and so we started getting excited and then as we got into maybe some of the more open spots that were further along yeah, warmer, sunnier. We finally did get a glimpse at a couple flowers, and they were really beautiful. Yeah. Bright yellow flowers. And it put it all into context, because prior to this, I'd only grown or known the tall Saracenias from the hobby, you know, growing in pots and stuff. So you don't really see them in the context of the habitat, but also get to kind of observe how they behave in the wild. And seeing that they flower before their pitchers are open and functional makes a lot of sense. Because they don't want to run the risk of eating. <laughs> you don't want to eat your prey. Yeah, you don't want to eat, no, you want to eat your prey. You don't want to eat or your pollinators. You don't want to eat your pollinators. <laughs> but speaking of pollinators. Well, you kind of do, but you eventually chill. Yeah, you, you eat them later <laughs> in the year. But the, the flowers are amazing structures. If you've never seen one, picture taking an umbrella, turning it upside down, and then putting sheets, like little strips of sheets over them that That's dangle a very good down below. explanation. And so anything that comes to these flowers crawls up in, hits the pollen that's at the base of that umbrella structure, and then falls down in and has to crawl back out of the umbrella to escape. But inside the surface of that umbrella are tiny little stigmatic surfaces that stick up. And these were bright yellow flowers. I think it was Saracenia alata. Yeah. Is that what we decided? I think so, because I don't think it was Flava. Fair enough. So, yeah, we saw a few pitchers starting to form, but they, I don't think, we maybe saw one that was open that whole time. And it was last year that somehow just made it through, I think. Yeah, didn't get beat up or burned. But I think uh, of all of the sightings, well, I will... No, it's definitely the most exciting. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I'll say there's two things that excited me there, but the first one isn't as exciting. It was just weird as seeing the magnolia. I think it was, they called it bay magnolia growing in a fire adapted habitat with fire scars coming back to oh, life. That yeah. was really weird. Cause I do not associate magnolias with anything other than like cool, damp forest types, not hot, burny fire yeah. <laughs> adapted ecosystems. But the, the cream of the crop for that day, the number one sighting of all was Pinguicula pumula. Yep. The small butterwort Pinguicula pumula. Pumula. Okay adorable plant i mean a rosette the tiniest the the rosette was probably like the size of a dime yeah like absurd my thumbnail would be a challenge to like exceed that it was so tiny but it threw up this wonderful little flower stalk that was ended in a maybe an inch eh, and a half inch and a half two inches tall bright purple flower with a little yellow dot in the middle and a long spur that comes off the end of it yeah. So cute. Really sweet. I didn't know what kind it was when we happenstanced upon it. I genuinely thought it was just another one of those daisies. Right. Because the flower was mostly closed still, and it was around, around the same height and area. <laughs> so we just looked and then realized that, oh my gosh, it's a it's a ping. And it was one of those things where we saw one, didn't see it for a while, and then as we were walking back along one of the roadways which led to a woodpecker tree one that they were keeping monitored for woodpecker nests everywhere where the vehicle they were using had driven littered with these little butterworts i'm telling you it's the perfect spot because it's a small depression where a little bit of liquid like moisture can settle and it's bare so they get more sunlight 
And that's that's the thing is this the rosettes of these tiny little they almost look like little succulents sitting there. They're fleshy little leaves. They 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 can't curled. compete. They're slightly curled. They look like little hot dog buns. Yeah, kind of curled in on themselves. <laughs> but they can't compete well with anything much taller than that. So they were obviously taking advantage of any area that freed up from competition and shading. But the neat thing was is it it triggered a memory I had about something I read in terms of butterwort subsistence so they have glands they're sticky traps insects get stuck on the sticky glands and then other glands digest them and absorb the nutrients from them but i had read somewhere that they also get a significant protein input from pollen Mm. and so they're doing great (laughs) yeah so we're in this pine savanna that was pretty much in full bloom quote unquote yeah so the male cones were just spraying pollen on everything my car instantly turned yellow you could see it pooling on the edges of the any puddles around there you could almost feel it in your eyes like i'm not very allergic to I, pollen i felt okay somehow yeah. i have no idea but it was how. like gritty whenever you blinked your eyes that's how much pollen was in the air and i i was thinking i was looking at these butterworts which were covered in pollen thinking like oh well there's probably yeah. all of their protein needs for the year yeah <laughs> taken out in one season for sure so that was kind of neat to see that in context because again i've grown butterworts on the windowsill not a lot of pollen floating around in here so no to see it kind of play out was really cool. So we, I don't know, we toured around that for a little bit, checked things out, and yeah. then we crossed the road. And then, so there was supposedly another area where there could be similar plants on the other side. And We saw lots of... Uh, oh, we saw a lot of that Smilax. Smilax laurelifolia. Yeah, great Smilax. Which, I like Smilax, it's fine, but I, I it's generally a backdrop here. You know, it's fine. <laughs> but Smilax laurelifolia is... It's a sharp looking plant, not sharp just because it's covered in it's like... spines, but it is nice. Thick, picture like a laurel type leaf and a vine just covered in that. And it's dark green and smooth and kind of shiny. And that was a that was a sharp yeah, looking plant. It had fruits and everything. Yeah. And then you found our first azalea. I did, yeah. Rhododendron canescens. Which I read one of the names is the Florida Pinkster. Which is adorable. Yeah. <laughs> So it's got these cute little whitish like, pink I'm the flowers. <laughs> they weren't even leafing out, but they had like these beautiful whorls of these azalea flowers on the tips of their branches. So cool. Just one of them though. So it was like a nice little taste. They're right on the edge of a small stream. Yeah. Very small, like more like a ditch stream running through this property. But we got close to the property line. It looked like we weren't welcome across the property line. So we, we decided to call it. Went back to the car and right on the roadside near where we parked was the cutest little grass I've ever seen. Oh despite my gosh, being... Matt is smitten by this I'm grass. I'm smitten by it. If Again, if you follow on Instagram, <laughs> I just posted about it, but uh, it's Bryza Minor. Smitten kitten. And it is got, it's tiny, it's a cool season grass, so it was flowering when we were down there. And it's got these cone-shaped little spikelets that are sort of clear along the edges, so it gives them sort of this translucent sparkle just adorable little plant it's from the mediterranean region it's not native here but it didn't seem like it's uh common enough to be considered worrisome at least not where we were no saw some bird's foot violet oh yeah i almost forgot about those we saw some scissorinchiums which are really nice yeah the little blue-eyed grasses there's a lot of a creeping rubus i wish i would have short and adorable and did you notice how much of that there was? Tons of it, yeah. Like, even in subsequent adventures we went on, I kind of wish we would have paid more attention to what that was. Well, I have a photo, so we can identify Good. it. Good, we'll, we'll try to identify it's, it from it's photos. It's very 
short in stature and not aggressive, which I liked about it. Yeah, it was, it was clearly loved by pollinators. Yeah, it was getting a lot of bee visits. So then after that, we weren't done. We drove all that way to see the savannah. So we went to another pine savannah. We said, that's not enough plants. Yeah, and then we heard <laughs> we heard tell of a, a seep in the area. So we drove to this other site, which was supposed to have lots of azaleas and a cool seep-like habitat coming out of the hillside and just another nice pine savannah. And I was, was kind of tired. We'd been out in the sun yeah but you can't threaten us with a good seep yeah and, and a, so and go home and we powered through it i'm really happy we powered through because the first part of the trail was interesting it was kind of a dud well yeah the first part was clearly either recent really recently burned and so it was trying to recover or it had just been degraded because it was covered in smilax and that yellow blooming oh vine. yeah what do they call that like southern Southern jasmine or vining jasmine or something like that. It's got a yellow tubular flower. If I didn't know any better, I'd say it was in Bignoniaceae. But mm-hmm. my take on that was that it was a degraded site, an old plantation or something like that. And it. they burned it last yeah. year because like all of the weird woody stuff in the understory was dead yeah. or dying and scorched. And the trees had like scorch marks that were like yeah. 15 to 20 feet high. So it must have been pretty intense. So we're like halfway through the day and we're like, all right, let's go to this next site. It's going to be great. And then we get in. It's like half a mile in already. We're like, uh. But we were seeing skinks, which was kind of Yeah, we cool. saw some skinks and there was some birds. And so we kept hiking through and. We finally broke out into like good habitat. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It what just happened? Changed. It just changed. Yeah. It was really strange. It just all of a sudden happened. And then we were in another really nice longleaf pine savanna, but this one was more rolling hills. It wasn't as flat as the other one we were in. So you kind of got to, you know, the longleaf pine savannas are open. You can see through them. You could probably drive a car through some of them. That's how widely spaced the trees are. So you got this really yeah. cool view of the landscape. As you mentioned, the, the sunlight filters through pines so differently than it does hardwoods. That's what I always loved so much about hemlock forests is, it's just completely different when you're in a hemlock forest. The pine forests just filter the light differently. And also probably all of the pollen in the air <laughs> yeah. probably changed it a little bit. Is that smoke? No, it's just pollen. Yeah, so it makes it kind of cloudy, but yeah. just that nice patina on the landscape <laughs> that makes you feel like you're in a different place. It's like in a J.J. Abrams film. But yeah, we, we kind of went through this area that was more of like a bottomland forest that had... Uh, totally different types of trees. We saw some cane break. And... Yeah, we saw we saw one of the native canes. Uh, I wouldn't say they were at cane break status, but they were definitely thickets of them by the streams. Yeah, I'm that trying was to remember. Nice to there see was that again. totally different type of habitat of trees, though. Yeah, there was we saw lots more of birch. Yeah, there was some birch in there and Carolina silverbells, or at least one of the silverbells, Halesia. And I, I see them all the time in Appalachia, but I never get there in time for them to flower. But the, all the silverbells were. We're in bloom, and we stood there for a little bit, and after we waited for all the fighter jets, they were <laughs> going over and so annoying. blowing out our eardrums. Uh, you could just stand under these halesia, these silver bells, and just hear the bees humming at the flowers. It was really cool. We also got fortunate to uh, come across a bridge uh, where there was a stream running through, and we saw quite a few azaleas. Yeah, far more azaleas. They were in full bloom, and they smelled incredible. It was a it was a weird kind of reminiscent odor that you know my when I was a kid we had azaleas underneath the picture window and so that smell kind of brought back that for some reason just triggered yeah. that old memory. Yeah, they smell cool. really great. 
We saw some skinks on that trail. And then, I mean, even seeing, again, these little palms, these palmettos oh, yeah. in the forest, when you're walking around seeing species, you know, some are you're familiar with, not, but it's it's a forest, and then you're like, oh, what's a little palmetto doing here? I'm not in the tropics. We definitely saw some nice, smaller longleaf pine babies in that forest, too. That was really cool. That was a really, that, that landscape was actually probably one of my favorites, because that was what I think of when I think of like a true longleaf pine savanna, where the understory is pretty open, and there's not as many shrubs, and it's, it had a lot of little blue stem, and so the yeah. blue, like that time of day we finally got there was Good a little light. later in the afternoon, maybe like around dinner time, and so the lighting was just kind of lit everything up mm-hmm. on the understory as just this bright orange and we had these tiny little longleaf pine cousin its that yeah, were like yeah. as tall as us. So and, if you, if you yeah. don't know about longleaf pine's life cycle, they exist for many years of their initial life as what they call a grass phase. Like up to 20 years, I think, at least. Something ridiculous yeah. like that. And it, it just looks like a, a big tuft of carex or some sort of grass on the ground. All you see is these really long needles in a thick, dense center. And I... If I didn't know what I was looking at, I would go, oh, that's just a grass and keep walking. But they exist that way because they're so dense that they're protecting their growth tip while they gain nutrients and energy uh, from fires that rip through the area. And so the leaves, the, the, the needles on the tips will burn, but they'll protect that sensitive growth tip in the middle. And then after a decade or two, when they finally store enough energy, they go through this rapid growth phase. Yeah. And like Sarah called them, they're cousin it's because you get these teenage phase <laughs> yeah they're in their little awkward yeah, their awkward puberty <laughs> and they just become these like really tall narrow beanpole trees that are just decked in a, a bunch of needles and it looks like cousin it very goofy yeah and they have this like candle stick looking thing at the top which is just this white mass of scales and stuff protecting that that growth tip we're all but they're just trying to get up and away from the fire as quickly as possible. Yeah. Because if they dawdled around in the uh, mid-story, they'd just be scorched really soon. They so it's, bolt. They just... it's a very rapid growth phase. Yeah, I really I really liked that spot probably the most out of most of the places. we. I mean, they all had their own unique values, but that spot was really neat with the just difference between the understory and the canopy trees. Yeah. We saw what looked like a lupin or a baptisia. That I'm had thinking not more baptisia. Yeah, the foliage looked a lot like a baptisia. And um saw some leaf cutter ants. Yeah. So they were I don't working know. hard. They had they had a really long trail that you could follow for so the first tens of feet. colony we saw, and I say colony because it was like a bunch of mounds in one area, they weren't looking like they were cutting leaves, but they were definitely they were bigger headed ants and they had this colony type setup. And and the reason we knew they were the same ant is because of the mounds they made. They were, like, mounding up the, the little pieces of soil into these little balls as they were making their little cones. Carrying them out, yeah. But then we got down into more of the sandy habitat, and that's where we saw, like, the leaf-cutting thing. Oh, yeah. So there was, like, the colony of mounds. It was a lighter soil type, but they were all ringed in these cut-out leaf shapes. And then, as Sarah said, she found the trail. Yeah, it just, it was really long. I couldn't even follow it because it went far back into the woods, but... It followed the trail for a while, and then it cut across the trail and went over. And you could see it, obviously, because the light sand contrasted with where they had clearly made a path for themselves and cleared all the vegetation in the path. So it's like an inch-wide path that they cleared all the vegetation from. 
and you could just see them doing their doing their job. Yeah, they were carrying, carrying stuff, leaves like cut leaves, they but also little pollen. They had catkins. They had little flowers. They had flowers. It, it was, was really, really cool. Neat. Yeah, and I don't know if this is like an introduced species or if there's a southern leafcutter ant. Anyone that knows about ants, I'll have to call Robert Warren. Yeah. Also, this is clearly very novel to us and exciting, but like yeah, maybe this could be something this all the time. But <laughs> I, I just thought they were very fastidious. They were great. I, I really enjoyed seeing them. Yeah, and then one of the the last plants I noted that day, at least, were. Those little Houstonias, the tiny bluet. And that's literally oh, yeah. what it ended up being was called the tiny bluet, Houstonia pusilla. And yeah, that was very sweet. I'm used to the other bluets that are blue with the yellow center. And this one was more purple with a, a red center and didn't seem to be as floriferous as some of the other species I've seen. But they were they yeah. were quaint. Very nice. I always love a good bluet. Well, how dare you forget the cool ferns we saw we saw a netted chain fern oh how dare me that's true um royal fern so we did find the seed yeah we did find the seed we eventually found the seed so we saw royal cinnamon netted chain and sensitive fern for sure we may have even seen more that we just don't even know true looked like some hay scented fern those little something some sort of thalipterus i would assume Mm -hmm. uh really cool but, yeah, the yeah. seep had lots of more of those rhododendron there. Yeah. Um, some interesting carex. I think we counted at least four different carex in one spot. Not that, again, one that looked very similar to gray eye, where it has those large... Almost um, like a mace. Yeah, it's really large, like, grenade-style <laughs> um, fruiting body. Yeah, but it was, I mean... Not knowing Carex didn't take away from the enjoyment of this because you could look at sort of the niche partitioning that was going on. You had ones that were pretty much in the water. You had ones that were on little mounds of soil that were totally saturated, ones that were along the edge, ones that were more up on the forest. It was like complete niche segregation of these different Carex. I wish I knew them better. Yeah. But that day was probably one of the best. So we wrapped that one up. Uh, ate late. a very late dinner, yeah, and then just pretty much conked out. <laughs> We're so tired. But the next day was the, one of the main goals of us going down there in the first place was kind of motivated by seeing pictures of the Abville Iris or Abville Iris. I don't know how you're supposed to say it. Iris Nelsonia. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But this last day was devoted to getting down to the pretty much the coast to be able to see this plant, hopefully in bloom. But we started the day at an interesting spot (laughs) which i put two and two together later called avery island and if you're a fan of neutral milk hotel i was sitting in the car we're there and i was like oh we're on avery island on avery (laughs) island so i looked it up it turns out they're part of the band at least is from louisiana so i got to be on avery island and we listened to the album on avery island on avery island Uh, and that was kind of weird but there's a tabasco factory which seemed like way too much of a tourist trap Oh, it was an interesting mix of things because it was clearly a campus uh, full of the industry and like yeah, you had to you and... had to go through like a toll booth to even get on the yeah, island. It was very interesting. I was kind of well, sketched out. So fun fact about the island is that it's a salt mound, salt dome, salt dome. That's all I know about it. Right. It's a salt dome. <laughs> and so you think Louisiana, you think the Gulf Coast, you think oil, and one of the big things, like salt domes, for whatever geological reason, are always associated with oil deposits. So it's it's literally just a dome of salt 
or saline, something that had pushed up above the landscape. And if you know anything about Louisiana, you know a lot of it's either at or under sea level. So they call them islands. We weren't really surrounded by water. We were surrounded by swamp, but this is like a little mound yeah. formed by salt underground uh, sticking up above the landscape. And so there was the, the Tabasco factory, which we kind of avoided, but then there was a garden there. Yes, called Jungle Gardens. And it's one of those places where you could tell that it at one point had been a really like luxurious yeah. botanic garden. Like someone now, knew what they were doing at Yeah, and now it's like, you can tell it's still maintained and it's really beautiful and it's got some really unique stuff, but maybe the diversity of plants has decreased a little bit sure. since, you know, maybe they've... After some time yeah. fallen out of uh, fashion or they haven't had like, as much money to maintain certain things. Or people just We did see care. those really neat, were they dracanas or aloes or? I think it was a yucca actually, now that I'm a, thinking back on the flower. A, yeah, it was really it was like beautiful. A, one of the stalked yuccas, obviously planted. I don't think they were native down there. Um, but it was it was geared more towards like driving your car around. It would have been cooler if we would have biked it, I think. But Oh yeah, biking would have been really cool bike. actually. Saw some gators, which was nice. Some knolls. Yeah. We saw that beautiful tongue oil tree, which I'd never seen before. Yes, the tongue oil tree. Gorgeous it's a Malvasie in full bloom. Picture a hibiscus flower, but sort of maybe about the size of a shot glass with white and then red veins leading to a red center. Gorgeous plant. And apparently it was introduced down there as an oil industry, some sort of you know plant-based oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a few bad frosts and a couple hurricanes pretty much demolished the industry yeah and so they're now they're just kind of planted as novelties uh the other cool thing was all of the uh aspidistra that were planted in the understory matt matt is a fiend for aspidistra flowers so like every patch of aspidistra he sees he rummages through the ever i mean no matter where i am yeah ever malls (laughs) waiting rooms botanical (laughs) gardens and of all the years i've been doing this i've only seen flowers once and it was not in Louisiana, so <laughs> I failed. And then I realized, like, oh, there's brown recluses and stuff down yeah, here. I should probably stop. Yeah, but, you know, I just aimlessly. let them do whatever you want. Yeah. But there was actually, uh, I don't know. It was, it was cool. fine. Yeah, was some, it was fine. There was, like, a palm gallery, which had some interesting palms. There was um, a lot of the podocarpus, like, really tall That's podocarps. That's what I think was the highlight for me, was the budapine podocarpus macrophyllus. I have only ever seen these as, like, tiny little potted plants in botanical gardens. And here they had some pretty mature specimens. Yeah, they had, I mean, I don't know what they were but there was that one tall gymnosperm behind that row of hollies oh yeah i think they were terea pines i'm not sure i think it was terea taxifolia because it looked like they were dying of crown some sort of crown death uh so they had a bunch of re-sprouts at the base i'm not sure i'll post pictures at some point maybe someone can tell us yeah maybe someone could tell us there was no labels that was the worst thing i think about but my biggest complaint was like this was just a show and tell not even the tell part. It was just a showy garden. Not everyone's a nerd. I know, but you can do both, right? You can have really pretty <laughs> yeah, setups. Uh, very few things were labeled. I know. Very yeah, few things true. were labeled. And that, that sucks when you're like, oh, what's this? I've never seen this before. Nothing. Yeah. Um, but it had a lot of aesthetic appeal. One cool fact is that McKinney, I think, the who started the Tabasco Company and the Avery Island, he set aside this area as an aviary for birds and he had seen caged aviaries set up in different areas to kind of like encourage wild birds to roost and he set up these huge platforms in the middle of the swampy area and it was full of 
egrets. Yeah. I think they were mostly gray egrets, but there was hundreds of them all nesting. And there was a couple egrets that just were really, really working hard to go yeah. back and forth and get nesting material for their ladies and help build nests. I actually it was really, pretty amazing. I like that one dude that kept going, getting stakes, coming back, and he'd land at the wrong nest and then, like, realize it at the oh, last moment. Go and be like, oh, whoops. Yeah. Sorry. He looks like he, I mean, it was a hot day. He was probably getting tired. He was working hard. I gave him, back and gave forth him mad cred. <laughs> he, was a, he was a good mate. But that was, it was a nice change of, from easy our morning hardcore botanizing yeah. easy morning saw some cool things we needed to work off that breakfast slowly you can't yeah. just crash into the day like that so then we decided enough was enough we'd waited long enough we were gonna go find <laughs> ourselves an Abville iris and we had only seen a couple irises before that we'd seen of course the yellow and we saw some blue what iris i think was the zigzag iris yeah. but only one or two in bloom so we were like are we gonna be lucky enough and so we headed out to find it at one of the only public locations you can see it. Apparently, this iris was discovered on one in one swampy area that's mostly privately owned. Yes. And so you really can't see it in its natural habitat, but they planted it at a place called Palmetto Island State Park in hopes that not only could they bolster the population and save it from like one stochastic event wiping out all of them, but also give the public a chance to actually witness this plant. So it's a it's a three-way hybrid of the copper iris, iris fulva, the dixie iris, iris hexagona, and the zigzag iris, iris brevicollis. Yeah. Yeah. I think. And essentially each one of those irises, they're, they're in this sub-tribe or some sort of lower grouping called the Louisiana irises, hexagonae. And it's this weird subset of irises that are larger and native to the Gulf Coast of Louisiana. But they all niche segregate out into slightly different habitat types some are more inland swamps some are more open swamps some are more ditch type you know not so wet so they should be reproductively isolated but in this small little corner of south central louisiana apparently enough of them were located within a close enough proximity to another that hybrids started to occur and at some point there was some back crossing i don't really Kismet know occurred. yeah <laughs> i don't know the mechanics of it but we ended up with a, a stable species of iris called Iris nelsonii, and it looks more like the copper iris than anything else, but it does have traits that are intermediate between all of them. And from what I've been able to read, not only does it isolate itself habitat-wise, so it prefers habitats that are intermediate of all its parent species, so it doesn't occur close to them naturally. It also has a pretty specific relationship with hummingbirds as pollinators, although bees will pollinate it as well. But one study showed that when even with the copper iris and the, the Abeville iris are next door to each other, even though they both have red flowers, once a hummingbird visits an Abeville iris or an Abeville iris flower, it only wants to visit Abeville irises after that. Well, that's, that's unfortunate because there's probably not as many of them. No, but the I, I mean, obviously they're doing that if it's, there's enough floral yeah. reward there. So sure. in a big population, they become somewhat reproductively isolated. So it is a functioning, viable species. They produce viable seeds. Hmm. And so we headed to this park to go hopefully see them. And the goal was to paddle to get out to some of the swamps and see some of it. But we're driving down the road. And there it is, right on the right, right side on of the, the road. Yeah, right in the ditch alongside One the road. One lone, tall, beautiful bloom. <laughs> yeah. We could see more sort of in the back like way back into the cypress swamp, but none of them were blooming. This one was, 
And I read more about it, and apparently what ended up happening at that site is that so much of that area has been degraded and channelized that the hydrology has changed significantly since the original planting. And so now you don't find them in the interior of the swamp as much. They've actually populated the ditches more because the ditches stay wet longer. Yeah. So it's like in a response to this altered hydrology, which ends up making them easier to see, but apparently it opens them up for poaching. So poaching is actually an issue for this plant. Yeah. Um, but fortunately... It seemed like there was a few within the area that had been yeah. protected. And we got more weird looks than, like, like people were very confused as to what these two weirdos were doing on the side of the road taking pictures of plants. <laughs> we get that a lot. Yeah, though. we get that a lot. But no one was like, oh, hey, looking at that iris? No one knew what we were doing. Um, well, we did see it right next to a blooming hemorrhocallus also. Yes, the spider lilies. Absolutely gorgeous plants. And... There was a few different size flowers, right? There were some big flowered ones and then a couple small flowered ones. I know there's offshoots and subspecies and oh, variants. Oh, it's a crazy thing. Yeah, I don't I don't know enough about that. The only time I'd ever seen it was when we were in Gainesville. Yeah, so that that alone, just seeing those two next to each other was pretty remarkable because the spider lilies have these big fused uh, central white corollas with these long white petals coming off, you know, radially and then their anthers stick out with lots of yellow pollen. It's just... It's a very gorgeous plant. Yeah, they're almost like a more flexed and widely opened uh, daffodil. Yeah. Yeah, in, yeah. A, in a lot of ways. So yeah, that was, I mean, that was just the roadside. So we're like, oh, we're in for a treat here today. So we went down, walked a couple of the little nature trails, saw some some skinks and some anoles, and there was a lot of poison ivy. So we were like, <laughs> you know what, let's just... Grab oh, a boat. that's another thing. We saw the pine savanna everywhere. It was poison sumac. Yeah. I forgot about. Oh yeah, yeah. Poison sumac was. I was sumac really was... scared to like. You had to really navigate through that poison sumac. It was pretty dense. It was just starting to leaf out too. So you, I wasn't like a hundred percent sure what oh, I was no. seeing. I was like, let's eh, just not touch it. But uh, at this last night, we we're like, all right, let's just get in the water. So we we rented a canoe, got in the water, and just started paddling down the to the Vermilion River. I, I believe so, yeah. yes. Which pretty much at that point just dumps out into the ocean. So we just wanted to see how far we could get. And it was like lagoon, stretch of creek, lagoon, stretch of creek, lagoon, stretch of creek. Yeah. And we just paddled, just saw what we could see. And it was pretty much palms on both sides, lots of oaks. Something that looked like a redbud, to this day I still don't know what it was. It looked like redbud style leaves, but it would have these little capsules at the tip. And it grew pretty much right up into the water's yeah, the, edge. The way that the seed pods looked almost looked like how mallows look but like like upside down. So you know how oh, when yeah. a, a mallow, it splits and it has like a star-like shape. It was like that, but flipped where the yeah. inner part was what was attached to the plant. I don't know how else to describe that. But. That's fine. Well, there were capsules of some sort. And I don't know what it was. If you could make a suggestion or a possibility about a tree that really likes to get its feet wet, has capsules and maybe chordate-shaped leaves, diamond-shaped leaves. I couldn't remember really tell um but we just paddled and it was really nice because it was you were kind of enclosed when you're in the river areas the trees came right up to you we were seeing black vultures and these giant oaks yeah lots of vultures they let us get pretty close because we were in the boat too Mm -hmm. so uh i had some run-ins with some gators yeah we saw our biggest gators that decided to jump in the water and swim out to our boat yeah and matt's like oh yeah we'll just uh we'll just go that way and maybe they'll just uh, not come towards us and then of course they just did come towards us and we were going at like full speed they left us alone Terrifying. they left us alone they were totally docile yeah they were fine 
But it was really fun because how often does that happen to you? Yeah, yeah, Um, that's again another experience northerners don't generally get. Kingfishers, little blue eye, little blue herons. That ribbon snake. We saw ribbon snake swimming. We saw more turtles. We saw some little uh, shorebirds that I probably was like a lesser yellow legs. More Selvinia again. This is like whenever you got into the slow water down there, it seems like that Selvinia really takes off. And we even saw some Azola, which is another floating fern. It's probably native to some extent down there, and it wasn't nearly as numerous as the Salvinia, but yeah. uh, it can get invasive as well. Some brown line skinks. Um, we saw an armadillo, yeah. which was so exciting. It was the first living armadillo <laughs> I've ever seen. I've only ever seen him as dead on the side of the road. And again, I know they're invasive in the south, but that was a new animal for me. And I mean, I think that just has really bad eyesight because we were right on shore with it, and it just kind of like, Sat there, sniffed around, rooted around, took some pictures of it, and then it wandered back off. They're cute. I they're can't help it. They're very cute. Their claws are huge. Oh, they're diggers. They're, I, well, yeah, but still, I, I never expected to see such large claws in such a small <laughs> animal. They're really massive. That was cool. Uh, it, was just, it was a really beautiful canoe trip. Um, yeah. It would kind of go through these, like Matt said, these channels where the trees would kind of surround you, and then it would open up to a more open you could tell that the surrounding area was more like a marsh because it had like tall grass yeah yeah so the the marshy aspect of it was really neat and that was a big realization for me is i'm so used to going to places like florida and getting down to the coast and it's just a beach but what i realized about louisiana is it's all marsh or at least historically was all marsh and so you get we were probably within a stone's throw of the actual ocean and it was just trees and swampy, marshy yeah. habitat. It was really cool, actually. I was I was super excited to see that and just experience something completely different than what I'm used to. Yeah. But, I mean, that was pretty much it for Louisiana Adventures. It was an incredible trip. We ate a ton of loquats and other great food and saw some amazing botany. But on the way back, we had noticed a sign on the highway on the way down, and we made a note to check it out. I'm really happy we did. We stopped in Mississippi to go check out the Mississippi Petrified Forest. And it's one of two petrified forests in the eastern United States, the other one being in Gilboa, New York. But this one dates back to like 36 or 38 million years. It's a Ligocene. And what it is, is it's an area where at some point a river just washed down all of these tree trunks and branches from farther up north and deposited them there. And the story goes that it used to be a farm and they farmed it too heavily and took away pretty much all the topsoil organic layer, and then it just eroded into this ugly badlands sort of habitat. But as it was eroding, all of these giant pieces of petrified wood were coming out of the hillsides. And so they, whoever owned the land decided to preserve it. They didn't really excavate it, and they let the forest grow up around it. But you get to see all these incredible petrified logs and trunks and stems in the forest of a 38 million year old forest from up north and it was species like oaks and maples and even sequoia wood was in there and and then weird species like euphorbia some sort of arborescent euphorbia that's no longer in north america um it was a neat little snapshot great little tour the best part was that their logo has a woodpecker pecking into the wood and his beak, <laughs> his beak is bent <laughs> It was yeah. just really, really cute. Yeah, there. yeah, and they have Charming. a little museum with a bunch of fossils and and like good educational stuff. Uh, they did okay with labeling some of the species that were living in the forest. Good little interpretive trail. But my favorite thing about that was some of the hollowed out logs, the petrified wood, 
were being used as den sites by animals. Yeah, it's really So cute. these animals were living in 38 million year old petrified wood and probably not appreciating it to the extent. Definitely. So if you ever find yourself in like southwestern Mississippi and you want to get off the highway, I recommend that. But I recommend the Gulf Coast in general. I had a good time down there. saw some great plants. I'm curious to know what it feels like in the heat of the summer when mosquitoes are out and the humidity is up. I don't know if I could handle that, but it breeds some interesting botany, and I, yeah. I hope everyone gets a chance to see it someday. Yeah, I had a really great time. It was a good trip, so thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. I want to give a shout-out to Vagervell Creek and Wetlands Fund. They are the latest donors at the producer credit level, so they are one of many people helping to produce a wonderful podcast for you, the listener. So thank you to them for supporting us. And if you want to become a patron yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash plants and check out all of the great kickbacks we have over there. Also, stickers are still for sale, indefensiveplants.com slash shop. And we still have tons of shirts and other forms of apparel available over at teespring.com slash shops slash plants. Stay tuned. So many great things on the horizon. A few announcements coming up, especially if you live in the Los Angeles area. And the best way to do that is to hit that subscribe button. But Sarah, thanks for talking with us. Oh yeah, no problem. If people want to find you on the internet and check out your version of our adventures, where can they find you? I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram as sjohnson4888. Great. I'll put up links to both of those in the show notes. But as always, thank you for listening. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.